But when I was in high school, I started to write bad poetry. Uh, here is one such poem. Dad, I love you very much and know that you love me. I love the way you make me laugh. I wish you were a tree. And I knew it was terrible, but I wrote it anyway. That and many other verses with that surprise last ending, I wish you were a tree, Sparky has to pee, uh, don't drink that, it's not tea, because they made my grandmother laugh. Um, I, I spent a summer with her uh, in Ohio at our cottage before she got sick and had to go into assisted living. And she had this lovely, contagious laugh, and I would just think of these silly poems to, to, to read to her so she would laugh and I could hear it, and I knew even at that young age that, that these might be some of the last opportunities that I would actually have to hear it. Poetry is an incredibly versatile communication. It can be about love. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. It can be scary. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. It can be nonsense. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momy raths outgrabe. Poetry's versatile, and, and among other things, it is just a way of communicating something that couldn't be said as well if you just stated the facts. By, by saying something less realistic, it can sometimes communicate reality better than strict accuracy. Poetry played an incredibly important part in the lives of the people of God. It was the book that Jesus himself quoted most often. Uh, Psalms and Song of Songs are written entirely in poetic verse. The Psalms um, were, were an avenue of public worship. They were meant to be sung in the, in, in the assembly to music. It was, uh, and I love the Psalms because unlike the, the more narrative and factual parts of the scriptures, they give us a glimpse into the hearts of God's people. We see in these poems, in these poems we see the, 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 the joy, the pain, the struggle, the conflict, the expectations that we know are, are common still to the human experience today. The Psalms are the songbook of Jesus. And they should be read as C.S. Lewis writes, with all the licenses, the formalities, the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections which are proper to lyric poetry. And because the Psalms are poems, they, they can sometimes be more relatable than, than the more narrative and, and factual parts of scripture, but they also, because they're poems, have some peculiarities that can be dangerous if, if, if we read them the same way that we read something like the law or the prophets, because poetry can't be too real. It can't be too like reality or it would mean less. For example, in Song of Songs, the, the scandalous love poem hidden in the middle of your Bible, um, the lover says to, I know there's like a middle schooler in here, like, where is it? It's old English scandalous, it's not nearly as interesting. Um, the lover says to the beloved, your navel is a rounded goblet. Now as a woman, if my husband said that to me and I took it literally, that would be like super insulting, right? But on the other hand, if he said, your navel is the perfect proportion for a woman of average weight, that would be far less romantic. We're, we're continuing our discussion of justice this morning throughout the scriptures, this idea that God's justice is the same as it was at the beginning of creation, as it is today, as it will be for all eternity at the end of all things. And we're looking at justice this morning through from the perspective of the poets. If you've been tracking with us, you know that the passage we've used to anchor this series is in Luke 4, where, where Jesus describes four social aspects of his ministry, why he has come. And specifically today, we'll be looking at that first aspect, to proclaim good news to the poor. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 82, or just listen as I read. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? 
Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. This is God's word. So right off the bat, we see some of this hyperbolic language, God Almighty rendering judgment on the gods, but we, we know that these are not actual gods. And there's some debate about this, but, but most scholars agree that the gods, little g gods that he's referring to, are, are really just earthly judges, people in a position of, of power or authority to render judgment on another. And one of the peculiarities of the Psalms for us today is that we see the poets calling out again and again for God's justice. They long for the day of judgment. And it's important, I think, if we're going to take the Psalms seriously to understand why they're doing that. Because for us, for the New Testament Christian, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We, we, don't, we don't want justice, really. We want grace. Because we know that we're all guilty. So we read something like Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, see if there is any offensive way in me. Psalm 7, vindicate me according to my integrity. And we're kind of like, shh, stop saying that. Because we know better. We know our own hearts. The New Testament Christian doesn't demand justice in the same way because we know that we have enough planks in our own eye to manufacture IKEA furniture. And we, we look at justice from the perspective of the criminal court with ourselves as the defendant. But, but the poets, the poor in the time of the Psalms, would have looked at justice from the perspective of the civil court with themselves as the plaintiff. And that would have made perfect sense because at that time, the judges, the local magistrates, required some form of payment. They required a bribe to even let your case be heard in court. And so the poor those most vulnerable to, to, to being oppressed by the wealthy lords and landowners had no recourse when their property or their animals or even their children were taken without compensation. They cry out for justice because they know they have an airtight case if only someone will hear it. C.S. Lewis writes, Christians cry to God for mercy instead of justice. They cried to God for justice instead of injustice. And so in this psalm, God is rendering judgment on the unjust judge, the, the one who oppresses the poor, the one who holds him back from pursuing God's good purpose for his life, and he wants their case to be heard. And so I think for the modern reader, it begs the question, who should hear their case? In the psalm, we see God holding those with power and influence responsible for not protecting the poor and vulnerable. And I would argue that we, as the Western church, are particularly culpable, not because we're the judges. Not, we are not, of course, the Old Testament judges to whom God is addressing here, but we are people with power and influence. And before we go any further, I just have to admit right off the bat that, that I know that I have no business talking about this subject. I have been sweating bullets preparing for this sermon because what right do I have to speak about poverty? I'm not poor. And my only experience with being poor uh, is, was growing up, I had a single mom, and she was a teacher, and she waitressed in the summers, and we bought our clothes at the Goodwill before that was, like, hip, and we were on food stamps for a period of time. And it would be really easy for me to lean into that experience and feel like I had some street cred, but I don't. 
because even though we were shopping at the Goodwill, I had more than two outfits to choose from. And even though you know we were on food stamps, I, I was well fed. In fact, you may remember me telling a story not too long ago about finding some old family photographs that I was showing my husband. And I pointed out everyone in the picture, all my aunts and uncles and cousins. And then he points at the one person that I didn't identify in the picture and says, who's the little fat boy? Yeah, I didn't think that I had to identify myself in the picture because he's my husband and surely he would have recognized me, but he didn't. <laughs> I was wearing a skirt, just in case you're interested. Just <laughs> having a real hard time letting that go. But I had plenty to eat. And, and my grandparents lived right down the road so my mom didn't have to pay for you know, childcare uh, after school and, and we had health insurance if we got sick. And so we weren't wealthy by American standards but by global standards we certainly were not poor. In fact, as I was, write, as I was preparing for the sermon I was getting so overwhelmed by the things that I was reading that I had to take like frequent breaks and sometimes I would just be wasting time online. And at one point I actually, I bought a jacket from an online secondhand clothing store while preparing my sermon on poverty. So I know I have to plead God's mercy here, and I just want you to know that I know. I know you don't feel rich. I don't feel rich. But in, but in the global scale, we are, we're incredibly rich. Anyone who can self-soothe with shopping is rich. We're so rich that after the service, we get to go eat. And we're so rich that not only do we get to go eat, we get to choose between Panera and Drunken Monkey because we have the luxury of knowing that we're gluten-sensitive. We're so rich that we wear deodorant. We're so rich that, that people give us credit cards because they think we can pay them back. And then, and then other rich people want to make us even richer by awarding us points for using those credit cards, which we can cash in for free stuff. We're so rich that, that, that when we drop food on the floor, we have the luxury of throwing it out. There's no good reason for that. If you drop a pretzel on your tiled floor, you pick that junk up and you eat it. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's not always true. If you drop pudding at a truck stop, leave it lie. <laughs> but in general, wastefulness does not cause us anxiety. We're so rich we have health insurance for our pets. We use hair products. All of the people in our household have shoes, not just the wage earners. Most of us have stayed at a hotel, and, and, and that one night would have cost about the same that a person, the average person in Malawi makes in four to six months. If you make $25,000 a year, you are in the richest 10% of income earners in the entire world. If you make $50,000 per year, you are in the, the, the top 1% of income earners in the entire world. Forbes just released some research calculating that the richest 62 people in the world, not 62%, 62 individuals now control more wealth than the poorest 50% of the world's population. 62 people control more wealth than, than just under 4 billion people combined. We're so rich that we have enough money to build doomsday bunkers in, that are stockpiled with food in case of the zombie apocalypse. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're listening, John Parker. But... It's a luxury to plan for things that may never happen. And I'm not saying we're never going to need a bunker, but I'm saying it's not going to be for zombies. It may be when we farm the earth dry, the deterioration of arable land that leads to widespread food scarcity, or just the tipping point when the desperately poor in the world so far outnumber those with plenty that they just come and take our stuff. These are avoidable outcomes we'll just hear their case. 
We spend millions of dollars each year on programs and pills that are designed to reduce our caloric intake. When there's a kid in Indonesia who has irreversible brain damage because he didn't get enough protein before the age of two, these, these aren't caricatures, these are people. And, and, and I think that if we claim to, to be followers of Jesus, we have to care about these people. I know the trouble with information like this. The trouble is that it's so massive. There's, the problems are so widespread. They're so overwhelming that, that, that we can feel paralyzed. We don't know where to begin, so we never begin. So, so let me just say, I am not trying to guilt trip us all. I'm not trying to guilt everyone into to selling all your stuff and giving it to the poor. I, if God calls you to that, awesome, you should do it. But I don't think that's where everybody starts. I think we start simply by recognizing that we are wealthy and that that wealth comes not with just simply civic but cosmic responsibility. I think we start by recognizing that through the blessing of our power and influence, we are the ones that God is, that is calling to hear the case of the poor. We have to hear their case. And we live in a world that is completely obsessed with, with instant gratification, and so we tend to gravitate toward uh, strategies that get immediate results, but, but that's not really here in the case of the poor. And sometimes it's not even that helpful. When Rob and I started dating, uh, I just moved in with some roommates, and one of them gave me a mattress, um, not, not a bed frame, but just a mattress, and I wanted to get a bed frame for it to, to pull it up off the ground so I could store some stuff underneath of it. And Rob wanted to be my hero, and so he picked me up and took me to Ikea, the, cup, the store where couples go to fight. And uh, you're laughing because you know it's true. And I found this great cheap bed frame. Uh, it was white and girly and uh, pulled the bed way up off the floor. Some of you have it, I can see. Um, and and uh, he asked me what size mattress I have. I, th I think it's a full. It's certainly not a queen, but it's bigger than a twin. So we get the full size mattress frame. And we bring it back to the apartment and he unpacks it and he get out, gets out his tools and he opens his toolbox. And then he looks at the instructions. And then he closes his toolbox and pushes it to the side and pulls off this teeny tiny little plastic bag off the side of the mattress. He rips open and takes out a hex wrench that's roughly the size and shape of a hockey stick made for chipmunks. And he spends the next three hours putting together this bed frame. When he's finally done, we're very excited. We lay the slats in, lay the mattress down. Frame's too small. Rob is the most wonderful, patient human being on earth, so he does his best impression of this not being a big deal. And then he takes the hex wrench and dismantles the entire bed frame, wraps it in plastic, packs it back up. We go back to Ikea, buy the queen bed frame, come back, same drill. He spends three hours putting it together with a tiny metal toddler straw. And uh, we, we get done, we're very excited. We lay the slats in, lay the mattress down. Frame's too big. There's gaps on both sides. So it turns out I have like a special size mattress that's, that's only available in like college dorm rooms called a full extra long. Um, and I don't have it anymore because Rob said if it meant never having to use that hex wrench again, he would just buy me a mattress that fit the frame. <laughs> he worked really, really hard that day. And he spent a bunch of money on me and he was really patient with me. And, but the whole time that we were working, we were working really hard on a prob problem that we had misdiagnosed. The problem wasn't the bed frame, right? It was the mattress. The mattress was a weird size. We can spend a lot of time and energy and money on a problem that is misdiagnosed. We can think that we're helping the poor, and, and sometimes we're not even just not helping, we're actually harming them. I was watching this documentary about poverty, and they shared the story about this man in Rwanda who um, had a, he, he started an egg business. He sold everything that he could to build an enclosure and buy some hens, uh, and he started an egg business, and it started to thrive. He was providing eggs for his whole community. And then in the wake of the Rwandan genocide, 
this little church in Atlanta decided that they were going to uh, help this village. And so that summer, they distributed eggs. They flew eggs in all summer long and distributed them to the people in the village. Um, and, and, and no one bought eggs from the egg man anymore because it's hard to compete with free. And eventually he had to sell his hens to buy the other necessities for his family. And, and, and then at the end of that summer, the, church, the little church decided they were going to focus their charity on another part of the world. But the egg man was already out of business. And no one in that community had the capital to, to buy new hens. And so, so there were no eggs in the community, and they had to travel to neighboring villages to get their eggs at, at twice the price, plus the, the hardship of travel. I'm not, I'm, not saying that there's, I'm not saying it's wrong to help. There's something very, very, very right about it. But we have to be smart about how we help. Hearing the case of the poor is about, is about listening to real needs. If you see a guy drowning in a pool, and you're like, I'll help you, buddy, and you throw him some dry clothes and a Chick-fil-A chicken biscuit, like, he's still going to drown, right? How we help is just as important sometimes as, as if we help. We've, we've, we have to ask what the needs are. Think of what a difference it would have made to that community if they would have asked what the needs were before they sent stuff. They might still have an egg man. We should help. We, we have the means to help, but we have to be smart about how we help, and the best way to be smart is ask the, to be in relationship with the people that we want to serve. We've got to let go of this idea that we know more simply because we have more. In a sermon on poverty, I'm sure you suspected that I was going to ask you to give money, and I'm not asking you for less than that, but I'm, but I'm asking you for more. I'm asking you to give time. I'm asking you to give your human empathy. I'm asking you to, to, to move toward relationships that will allow you to hear the case of the vulnerable so that when you give your money, it will do good and not ill for those that we are trying to serve. Verse 3. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God Almighty is calling on the gods to, to, to respond to the, to the cry of the poor. And he's, he's calling on them to do it wisely. We see this all over the Old Testament. The gleaning laws. Don't go over your field a second time. Leave something for the poor. The, the, the Sabbath laws, the laws of Jubilee. Let, let the land rest every seven years so that it can become more productive. That's not even charity. That's, that's just like good sense. In the Psalms, we see poetry that is both violent and desperate. And again... Because of the genre, we can't take it as a command. We shouldn't be looking for Babylonian children to dash to pieces. But, but the violence and the, and, and the desperation point us to something that we have to pay close attention to. Forsaking our greed. And that doesn't mean not making money. It just means making money in a way that's good for us and good for the people who are working for us. It's just good sense. You don't even have to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can still recognize that there is a natural consequence to greed, that there is a natural consequence to injustice. C.S. Lewis writes, It is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings in the Psalms with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. They are indeed devilish. But we must also think of those who made them so. Their hatreds are the reaction to something. Such hatreds are the kind of thing that cruelty and injustice by a sort of natural law produce. Verse 5. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. 
They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Unjust judgment shakes the foundations of the order which sustain creation. There is a natural consequence to it. Because God designed his world with all the good pieces he made to work interdependently together. So when a piece goes bad, it, it, it affects all the other pieces. The badness gets into everything. Our coffee maker broke like last week. And, and I know this because after several attempts, it will only produce some kind of undrinkable coffee sludge. And I know this, there's a part in there. Somewhere in that coffee machine, there's some small part that has gone bad. And, and it doesn't matter if all the other parts are, are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It doesn't matter if all the other parts are working just as hard as they've always worked. That one, the badness of that broken part is holding all the other parts hostage from working according to their design. Justice is part of the fabric into which our world is woven. And so when it breaks, it ripples consequences across the entire tapestry. Injustice moves us toward the chaos of unordered creation. And, and I want to say that I, I, recognize, I know there's someone here who's getting like really mad at me because you're tired of getting beaten up for something that you're not doing yourself. And just, just hear me say, I'm not, I'm not holding you responsible just because you have a little money. I'm not saying that it's your fault that we got here. I th some of the richest people I know are also some of the most personally generous people I know. And you can be, you can be giving above and beyond the tithe. You could be paying your employees better than, than any other comparable company. You could be sponsoring a bunch of kids at COTN. I'm not blaming you personally. I'm just saying that injustice, by its very nature, injustice infects all the other pillars of God's creation. It works its way through the whole batch. It becomes systemic. That's why someone who's making 25K doesn't feel like the richest 10% in the world because in our culture, they feel ashamed of their secondhand shoes while their friends are wearing Nikes and they feel ashamed of their food stamps while other parents are paying with visas. 25K, it's not even that rich in American culture. I'm just saying that 90% that, that of the world is poorer than that. And we become ashamed of it. And, and we all contribute to that. We all have that darkness of the human heart that tempts us to measure our worth by our wealth. It becomes more than a personal flaw. It's a corporate flaw. And because it's a corporate flaw, it is one that, that one generous individual, no matter how good and generous you are, cannot undo alone. I'm not saying it's all your fault we got here. I'm saying it's all our faults if we stay here. Verse 6. I said you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. The psalm concludes rather harshly with a reminder to, to the gods, the, the, the people who have earthly power and influence, that they too are still just breath and dust. And I think there's an invitation here for us as the modern reader to, 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 to recognize our own poverty, both individually and collectively, I think we can come into this conversation about poverty, something as big as poverty, and, and we can come in with some assumptions. And I'm not saying that all those assumptions are wrong, but I'm saying that, that we need to, to, to begin the conversation with the understanding that, that need, need is the only state of being that we share with every other human in all of created history 
save one. A few years ago when I was young and I still did fun things, my friend Heidi asked me to go downtown and see a band. And while we were walking down to the venue, uh, we were approached by this kind of old bedraggled man and, and he told us he was from Somalia and he'd lost his papers and he told us that he needed enough change to, to sleep at the homeless shelter or else he'd have to sleep under the bridge. He told us that God knew that he was in need. And I could see Heidi, you know, struggling with what to do. And finally she just says, listen, I'm sorry, I can't give you cash, uh, but if you want to come with us, I'll buy you something to eat. And he kind of brightens up and he's like, over at Subway Sandwiches? She was like, sure. So we walked over to Subway. And on the way, I asked him what his name was, how he got here. And he says his name is Mohammed. And he was traveling with a carnival from San Diego to Jacksonville. And, and on the way, his bag got stolen with a social security card and, and his working papers. And at the, at the end of the carnival, the, the carnival had abandoned him without pay. And I didn't really hear how he got from Somalia because we'd already arrived at Subway. And Heidi says, get, any, get anything you like. And so he orders a 12-inch roast beef sub with a chocolate chip cookie. And she swipes her card, and while she's finishing the receipt, I notice that the cashier is, is glaring at us. And finally, he just can't help himself, and he says, I hope you know that that guy was in here eating 15 minutes earlier. And Heidi shrugs, and, and we go outside, and Mohammed shakes her hand, and he thanks her, and he says that God will bless us, and I am so angry. But I'm not angry at Mohammed. I'm angry at the cashier. Listen, I, I, I don't know if you should give, I don't know when you should give and when you shouldn't give. I don't know that there's a, there's a formula for that kind of spontaneous charity. I don't know. And I can't promise that every time you say yes, you're not being swindled. And I can't promise that every time you say no, you're not turning away someone legitimately in need. What I do know is that Mohammed didn't know where his next meal was coming from. And it, and it occurred to me that I didn't so much care if that was a path that he'd chosen or a path that was thrust onto him because I don't think something is easy simply because it's a choice. I don't know where we get this idea that, 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 that living on the, the charity or the naivete of others is, somehow makes for an easy life. It doesn't. It destroys the opportunity for real human connection because people won't look you in the eye. Something isn't easy by virtue of being a choice. Maybe he was an addict. Maybe he was a liar. Maybe he marked these two young girls from a mile away. So what? I can't, I can't judge Mohammed because I am Mohammed. There are times when we are all Mohammed. There are days that I am so subject to my appetites, such a slave to my desires, that I become numb to God's faithfulness. And I, I can't wait on my manna from heaven, so I trick my neighbor out of his. And on those days, that cashier, who even probably was trying to protect us in all his condescension, the cashier becomes my accuser too. Because we're all cheats and liars sometimes. We just find more sophisticated ways of doing it. So, so I can't begrudge him his 12-inch sub and chocolate chip cookie. Heidi loved this man the only way that she knew how, and it was beautiful. And I, and I think perhaps there's something that gives me hope to know that humanity can still be scammed. Sometimes we think that people are poor because they just don't work hard enough. If they, just, if they just read to their kids and spent time raising them right, they could turn this whole thing around. Well, maybe, but on a global scale... Maybe they can't read. 
And even if they can read, maybe they can, but, but if they spend that time reading instead of peddling scrap metal for money to feed their kids, no amount of teaching their children will overcome the learning deficiencies created by their malnutrition. We're still, we're still approaching this problem as people who have time for leisure after work. Not everybody does. Not if they want to eat. If we think they just need to work harder, then we don't know what it's like to try to grow tomatoes without soil, seeds, or sun. We cling to this idea, this, this, this belief that people just need to work harder. I really think, and this is, mind you, an opinion formed by recognizing the ugliness in my own heart. When we cling to this idea that people need to work harder, I think it's because we, I don't know how to deal with the seemingly arbitrary nature of my wealth compared to that kind of poverty. The, the, the lottery of birth that I seem to have won, I don't know how to live with the knowledge that I have so much and they have so little without there being a good explanation for it, some, some, some merit on my part, some failure on theirs. Because otherwise, I don't know how to feel about my wealth except guilty, but that's not what God wants. God doesn't want you to feel guilty. You don't want you to feel guilty because, because if, if you feel guilty, that means, you, that means you still think that you're an owner and not a steward. But that's not what we are. We're stewards. It's all God's stuff. If he wants his stuff, he'll take back his stuff. He's given it to us as an opportunity to join him in what he's doing in the world. We're stewards. We're not owners. can't feel guilty about stuff that's not yours. He doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to feel called. That doesn't mean that everyone in here has to go out and become an expert on global poverty. I'm not saying that we need to all do all the new things. Because, again, it's not just about our individual responsibility. It's about our corporate responsibility. It's about what all of us do together. And there are some really great things happening already at this church. We are, If you've been to any of the panels that we're doing on Sunday nights, you know we're trying to partner with organizations that, that are helping without hurting people in the world. We're trying to, to, to be responsible stewards of all that God has given us. So I'm not saying find a bunch of new things to do. I'm saying, I'm saying join into the things that we are already doing. Because we're already, all of us here are already doing this together. Your tithe dollars pay for it. Your networks educate about it. So, 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 so don't find new things. Join, unless God calls you to new things, then do new things. But, but, but join into the things that are already happening. Be all in here. Because we can do a lot of good when we are all doing good together. I don't know why. I don't know why God saw fit for us to have so much and someone else so little. I don't know why. But what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what I do know with certainty is that it has nothing to do with what we deserve. If we all got what we deserved, we would all be homeless and hungry and without help. And I do know with absolute certainty that everywhere in the scriptures that God chooses to bless his people, he does so so that through those people... Through those people, he can bring blessing to the entire world. Because in the grand narrative of history, as God is bringing his kingdom nearer to the earth, the story is not about you. It's not about me. It's about us. God's story with us. God didn't just come for individuals. He came for his people. His people who, who, who reflect the blessings of living as his children. His people who, who, through the way that we love one another, attract the rest of the world to his grace. His people who, who all together reflect the image of God more than any one of us could alone. The story is about us. 
On our walk with Mohammed, I promise you the best part of that interaction was not the sandwich. It was the talking. It was just talking to people who seemed interested in knowing him. If you were here for, for the, the poverty panel two weeks ago on Sunday, you'll remember that, that, that wealthy people define poverty in terms of material need, but, but nine out of 10 uh, poor people defined it in terms of relational need, a, a relational poverty, a denial of the meaningful networks of community that make progress possible. And of course it would do that. Of course it would inhibit progress because how many times are, are you at the, the corner of the, some street corner and, and, and the guy with the cardboard sign is walking towards you and suddenly there's something fascinating happening with the radio of your Nissan Sentra? We don't want to look people in the eye. And, and I don't think it's because we're afraid of being asked for a couple of bucks. I think it's because we're afraid of being asked for connection, for empathy. Because in our moment in history, this moment where we are choosing square feet over friendships, where we are choosing screens over faces, we are terrified of being asked to enter into someone else's need. I don't think we always hoard our wealth. I think sometimes we hoard our human empathy. And we reserve it only for the people who we know will not ask more than we are able or willing to give. And we can begin to see the poor as, as not as people, but, but as needs, and we move away from them. But thank God that when Jesus looks at you and me and sees only need, he moves toward us instead. Thank God that we have a Savior who, when he sees our poverty, doesn't say, man, if they just read to their kids and raised them right, they could turn this whole thing around. Let's not fool ourselves. It is only charity, not merit, by which any of us are saved. It's not us and them because we're all them. We are all people who have nothing to offer to a God who has everything to give and gives it generously. Apart from the imputed riches of Christ, we are all miserably poor. And so good news to the poor, both for the psalmist and still for us today, is that our case has been heard and judgment rendered in our favor, not because of our goodness, but because of his. So let's be good to one another. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are grateful, again, for the people that you brought us into this room with, for the meaningful connections that we're able to foster. Lord, I pray that we would start every day with gratitude for that that you've given us people to love and that, that you've given us to other people as someone that they can love too. I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to view your people, to view the, the, the people that you put in our path every day. I pray that you would give us fresh ears to hear your call, no matter where that's leading us, no matter how scary I pray that you would help us to be a church, a people who manifest your justice, not simply as individuals, but, but, but as the church together. Let us love one another and, and our community so well that people, people want to know the God that we live that way for. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be together. Give us the wisdom to discern where you're calling us 
to move toward it wherever that might be. Give us the humility to see where we are still impoverished and where we need to lean into the riches that you offer through your death and resurrection. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. <laughs>